Uh, last week we looked at marriage, or at least a little bit of it, about it, uh, and that, that can be hard going, because it, it just upsets us, because relationships are hard, and uh, everyone's got an issue, we've all got a weak spot, we've all got a, a vulnerability, and uh, uh, as we think about singleness this morning, all the same applies. Uh, we've all got issues, we've all got vulnerabilities, and uh, the only kind of saving grace is that there'll be something hard for all of us as we walk through uh, this morning. Uh, I'm very aware uh, that this morning when we think about singleness, I'm open to the charge of uh, having absolutely no idea uh, about it. And just to be honest and to level with you, if you're unaware, that's kind of in a sense true. Uh, at 15, Kerry and I were good friends. At 16, Kerry and I were madly in love. By the time we were 21, we were married, and that was 21 years ago. So I know a little bit about marriage. We've got four kids. I've got plenty of theories about parenting. None of them work, but lots of theories. Uh, but I have no real experience, to be honest, of uh, living on my own for an extended period of time. And in that sense, have no personal experience of singleness as an adult. I do, though, have uh, the experience of talking to lots of people, both married and single, uh, and trying to understand something of the tensions and the dynamics that take place within the home, depending on who lives there and for what reasons. So I'm hardly an expert, but I want to try and draw out some of the principles in the Bible this morning uh, that I hope will be helpful to you, although I confess that on first reading they may not feel very helpful and you may be tempted to shoot the messenger. And and that's okay, you can shoot me uh, if you choose. But I do want to ask that in those moments perhaps when something seems uh, hard to hear, it it seems to create a frustration in us, make us angry, it it would be very easy to dismiss it as the words of someone who hasn't got a clue, and that's fine. What I'd urge you to think about is that maybe what God is saying in that hard thing, in that angry thing, is what the thing that makes you frustrated or angry is, is what you need to hear for all of us. Sometimes it's the things we least want to hear that brings healing to our lives. Isn't that true? Sometimes it's the hard things that we hear. Uh, so, so here we go. Let's pray. Shall we, Father? Would you just help us? Because we all need a, we all need your help. We're all, we've all got issues. We're all vulnerable. We all struggle with relationships in one way or another. So we need your help. We're conscious of our own lives. We're conscious of the people around us. Come be our help and our guide, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So people can be single for uh, all kinds of different reasons. It's stating the obvious. Uh, people who have been married and are now separated or divorced have been married, widow or widower. Those who are single and hoping to be married, those who are single and really hope they will never be married, and uh, so the list goes on. So a variety of perspectives with which I want you to uh, receive and think through and reflect on uh, uh, how it fits your situation. Not everything that we say fits every situation of singleness. The problem, though, is this, I think, at its, at its, at its base, at its core level, The Bible says that singleness is a gift, but for many people, it can feel more like a curse. I think that's the the real issue that 
touches many of us. And many of us this morning are single. Let's not kid ourselves that this community is full of happily married people. That's how we often think of groups of people. That's not the case. You can go through the directory and uh, make the statistics uh, uh, yourself. Uh, And this idea of singleness being a gift comes right in at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 17. Uh, and if you grab hold of it in your Bible, it's the same verses that we had open some moments uh, ago. Uh, Corinth was filled with lewdness and licentiousness. It was a uh, uh, an interesting place to live or to visit. In fact, uh, the, the city was filled with sexual promiscuity. Even amongst the church, Christians would be sleeping with prostitutes. Drunkenness and orgies was part of the social fabric of that environment. Such that there was even a verb to be Corinthianized, which essentially meant, excuse the language, oh, I'm going to get legless and laid. Uh, And and that verb expressed the character of this city where people are turning to Jesus and trying to work out what it means to be single, what it means to be married, what's the place of sex in singleness and marriage and so on. And Paul begins to write to them, you can see in verse 1, responding to a question or several questions that they've already written to him about. Now, unfortunately, we don't have those other questions. We can only imagine what they might have been. And he says, now, for the matters you wrote about, it's good for a man not to marry. That's what it says. Which is in quite stark contrast to the honour that marriage has had right throughout the Bible. So let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. But Paul is clearly saying something very important here. It's a powerful statement in our culture. It was an even greater statement in their culture. It's good for a man not to marry. And if you can't live a pure life, he goes on, then uh, it's better that you go ahead and be married. If you can't control your passions, then put your passions to good use and find yourself a decent wife and settle down with her. And when you are married, verses 3, 4 following, uh, don't deprive each other, husband and wife, mutual respect, physical, emotional, and so on. Radical words, as we looked at last week, about the use of, uh, of our bodies, giving of ourselves one to uh, another. The only decent reason for not having an active sex life as a married couple is because you're committing yourself to times of fasting and prayer. That's what the Bible says. You can go New Testament. It's there in the Bible. You don't have to take that from me. And then this all works forward to the punchline in verse 7. I wish that all of you were as I am. Well, single. I wish you were all single. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift and another that word gift is the word pornea from which we get the same word of spiritual gifts or graces there is a a grace bestowed on singleness and he'll go on to say why in just a moment but let's pause there because for many singleness is not a grace it is a curse not a blessing but something to be endured not a freedom but something to be rescued from and maybe there are a number of reasons firstly because of our faulty view of marriage and if you didn't uh, hear last week then uh, you, you need to hear last week to understand what I'm going to say in just a, a couple of sentences because we unpacked it a lot uh, fuller last week we 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 live with this um unwritten 
sometimes unspoken understanding that somehow marriage will fix our relational need. We make marriage or our future spouse our functional saviour, someone that can rescue us from the way that we feel about ourselves and our lives. Of course, that's a, a load of humbug. Marriage doesn't complete you or rescue you. Only Jesus can do that. And that's what we looked at last time. And I'd encourage you, urge you to, to listen to that if you missed it. It's a very important backdrop to everything else that we're saying uh, this morning. So we must avoid this idea that singleness is a pathology that is cured by marriage, because it isn't. There are unhappy married people. There are unhappy single people. There are happy single people, and there are happy married people. There are lonely married people. What's that weatherman thing? Do you know you used to have those weathermen, the man used to come out? It's fantastic. So there are, there are uh, lonely single people. Ironically, relational counsellors would say the greatest loneliness is sometimes found in marriage. Those are just a, a, a few thoughts. So marriage doesn't cure. Marriage doesn't cure. Marriage doesn't save. Jesus cures. Jesus saves. thought I might have got an amen for that, but I didn't. So I'll try again later on. Thank you. Secondly, faulty view of ourselves. We believe that if we're not married, then there is something wrong with us, that it makes a judgment upon us. Let me level with you. Can I say a few things that go through my mind that perhaps maybe shouldn't, that if I say them out loud, you might judge me? Can I take that risk? Are we friends? You're desperate. Now, yeah, anything, anything, anything. Yeah, we're friends. I'll, 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 I'll tithe. I'll do anything. A simple observation that bears this out. (laughs) Have you ever thought to yourself, what's that man doing with that woman? (laughs) Have you ever thought, what on earth is that woman doing with that man? There are plenty, I'll get an amen for this, there are plenty ugly, stupid, arrogant, selfish people who get married. Amen. Isn't that the truth? And I want to tell you something else that is equally true. There are plenty of people who are beautiful, life-filled, and fully open to God's purpose who are single. Amen. And humanly you ask the question, why are they not married? So it's got nothing to do with who the people are really, is it? You know, the ugly ones get married and the beautiful ones stay single. Boom, boom. Sometimes the other way around. Third reason is a faulty view from others. We perpetuate the idea somehow that marriage is first rate and singleness is second rate by the subtleties that we adopt and continue to adopt. The dinner parties that need balanced numbers. The anxious comments from parents and friends about their grown-up children not having settled down yet. Ooh, that hurt. It, it reveals a prejudice in us. Maybe. Question mark. When are the grandchildren coming? Painful. Questions. 
but they say something about maybe our underlying position as parents and wants for our children. Clumsy attempts. You've never done this, have you? You won't admit it now, anyway. Clumsy attempts at matchmaking. Manipulative, slightly underhand, all serve to reinforce the belief that singleness is something that needs curing or that people need freeing from. It's a gift. Jesus makes the same point. Matthew chapter 19, verse 12. He makes the same point. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there were eunuchs who've been made eunuchs by others. That's his kind of a side point, to, just to get the, uh, the, the, the very exceptions out of the way. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. This is not second rate. Why? For those reasons. For that reason. Three simple words. Jesus was single. So, was Jesus not complete in his humanity? No. Was Jesus in any way unfulfilled? Was Jesus somehow needing something else in order to fully breathe or move into God's purpose for his life? No. Jesus was single and he was celibate, but we would say of Jesus, fully alive. Could have had an amen for that, but we didn't. Shame. Fully alive. So it must mean, am I missing something here? So it must mean that with Jesus you can be fully human and be single and be celibate. Is that true? But this is hard. Because it's pushing against the grain of our culture. It's pushing against, I would dare to suggest, the way we might internally feel. Let's keep going. So what are the blessings? Blessings of singleness. Seems odd even for some people to think that there are any. And I recognise that. This is a bit negative, but we'll start here because Jesus is, uh, starts here, as it were, in picking up the conversation. Matthew chapter 19, uh, there's this discussion going on, and uh, Jesus replied, verse 8 of Matthew chapter 19. Perhaps turn to it uh, for a moment. What's the page number, somebody? Page number? 987. 987. Okay, Matthew chapter 19, verse 8. Uh, there's a debate going on about divorce and how uh, marriage can get messy and, uh, uh, and, and, and all of that. And uh, Jesus replied, Moses permitted you, verse 8, to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. Verse 9, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. That's a verse that's been argued and debated down through the centuries. Verse 10, the disciples hearing all of this. The stress of being married, the strain put on relationships when you are married, the total turmoil of breakup, the disciples stand back and go, my word, it's better then, isn't it, that people don't even marry. If that's what marriage is like, if that's the pressure and the strain that it places on people, then better to leave that well alone. And suddenly some of us can relate to that. And Jesus doesn't deny it. Jesus works with it. 
As they reflect on the huge challenge, Jesus accepts their point. There isn't a person here who is happily and fulfillingly, is that a word? Married. Who doesn't know the pain, the cost, the heartache, and the vulnerability of getting to that place in their marriage. Nobody here. Nobody here. There isn't anyone who has a marriage that they delight in that hasn't gone through all kinds of heartache to get there. There isn't anyone here who hasn't been touched, who has been touched by divorce, who doesn't know the absolute agony of that whole process. That everybody limps away from a broken relationship. That, those, is it Volkswagen are doing all those ads at the moment, aren't they? They're doing the rounds on the web. Hello? Normally in life, if someone asks you a question, you're polite enough to respond. Yeah, is it Volkswagen? You don't know? Okay, well, at least, anyway. They, they did, in my opinion, one of the worst adverts ever. They had this car, this golf, all dressed up as if it was to say just married, and it said just divorced as this lady got into the car and drove off into the sunset. You might remember it. It's never like that. Ever. That's an absolute media con. It's never, ever, ever like that. Marriage can be agony because it leads to such hurt and brokenness sometimes. And if your marriage is mediocre, then the daily effort, emotionally, of that is also huge. As you bicker and score points and undermine and fail to offer support, etc., etc. So the disciples stood back and said, wow, that's what marriage is like. I can see that without it, it creates a freedom. Secondly, Paul says... I want you not to marry because I want you to be free from concern. A spouse brings double the worry. (laughs) Just double, some of you are thinking. Kids, much, much more. Your life is totally different. Hey, husbands and wives, if you haven't realized this, your wife is, your life is totally different than when you were single. You don't have to worry, uh, as a single person, about somebody else in the way that you do when you're married. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, you have another person whose needs you are to put first. Don't tell me that's not hard work. Don't tell me that doesn't take a lot of time. Don't tell me that doesn't take any sacrifice. If you think it's easy, you're not getting it right. Almost certainly. It's a massive restricting effect on your life. Now, is that to say that having a wife or a husband is bad or wrong? No, absolutely not. I would not swap for the world, Carrie and my children. Not for the world. But does that mean it requires something of me? Absolutely. Does that mean it requires something of Carrie? Absolutely. Way more, probably. Sacrifice for her. Ask a mother what difference it makes not to have concern for their children just for a couple of hours. So many marriages fail because people decide that that price to pay is too high. Isn't that true? 
the price of working through it, the effort that it will take, the sacrifice involved. So Paul says, you know, actually there's something really good about being single because it does create this freedom from concern in that kind of way. And freedom with that from certain responsibilities. For example, you have time in a way you don't have if you're married or have a family, maybe. All this is relative, understand that. Fit it to your context. If single people were taken out of church life, church life would fall apart across the country. If single people were taken out of the voluntary sector in our society, it would fall apart. Because there is a uniqueness of opportunity there. And I think Paul is trying to tease that out and wanting to encourage us to begin to celebrate that. When you are single, you have financial resources that others do not. When you get married, you end up spending money you don't know you have on things you never knew existed. Scatter cushions. Ask a married man or woman what they used to do for a hobby. They'll try and remember. So there's a serious point that Paul's making. And we shouldn't sweep it aside as if it's glib. And There is a freedom, Paul is saying. Now, with every freedom comes a responsibility, sadly. And that's the case here as well. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 32. What do you do with your freedom? Well, you can have undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul writes, there's this opportunity and there's this freedom and I'm living in this opportunity and this freedom and actually, as I think about it today, he says, I long that all of you would have this freedom and this opportunity. What? To do what? To have an undivided heart to the Lord. He looks at the married men who are still struggling to work out which kid needs to be where, which day of the week. He looks at a married woman who's uh, busy uh, planning the home, maybe out at work, maybe stressed about a whole myriad of things about the fulfillment of her family. And Paul says there is a freedom to have an undivided heart for the Lord. Remember most of the New Testament would never have been written if Paul had been married. He could never have travelled like he did, planted churches like he did, uh, and so on and so forth. Paul's concern, and maybe mine is too, that we miss the grace, the gift, the opportunity that singleness can bring. The grace to go higher, deeper, further with God. The, The grace to achieve greater things for God's kingdom that we miss this season. And it may be a short season, it may be a long season, it may be a lifetime, but Paul is saying there's an opportunity in it to be seized. That he himself, as a single person, following Jesus who was also a single person, says, I long for people to live in what this grace provides. Now this could be where it gets really hard. The more you are devoted to the Lord, the more what I just said will make sense. 
The more you are devoted to other things, the harder it becomes to accept. If you want to be married more than you want to seek his kingdom, if you have marriage then as your God and you will live that out in your daily life, you will serve a foreign God. Jesus was right when he said it's a hard teaching. And we'd all agree. How then should we live? What's the lifestyle of singleness? I just jotted down a a few things. Number one. Pursue his kingdom. Pursue his kingdom. We need to live as though the season that we are in, this is true of all of us, is an opportunity for the kingdom. Isn't that what we've been thinking about? Isn't that what the whole of that series in Ephesians earlier on in the year was about? That God's placed us in situations and circumstances to seize the moment. In fact, in the heart of Ephesians, Paul said, make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Make the most of every opportunity because there's a job to be done, because there's a kingdom to advance, because there's a king to honour. That's true of singleness too. It may be a short season, a long season. Make the most of the season you are in. Pursue his kingdom. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Pursue Jesus. He's the only one that can meet the needs that you are tempted to seek in a human spouse. There'll be all sorts of things wrong with a potential spouse. They will not rescue you or save you back to where we were some moments ago. Now, the temptation is if you're single and the thought of being married is what dominates your horizon, then you will spend your time and your energy trying to be attractive to people of the opposite sex. So what do you do? You want to look right. You want to wear the right stuff in the hope that you will attract somebody else. There's a problem with that, isn't there? A fundamental flaw with that as an approach, and we'll come back to this in a moment as well. You see, if you attract someone because they like the way you look now and what you're wearing now, goodness help you in 10 years' time. Because even if you're wearing the same gear, it'll look ridiculous on that body. You're stuffed. You do not want someone to like you because of the way you look and what you wear. Do I get an amen? Amen. (laughs) There we are. Praise God. I've released your inner world all of a sudden. Do you know what will make you the most beautiful person in the world? It's Jesus. One of the most beautiful people that Carrie and I know never married. And you can't help but meet Jesus when you see her. You want someone, if you're going to have someone, who is attracted to the Jesus in you. Pursue Jesus with all of your heart. Give him that undivided devotion that Paul was talking about. So maybe you need to pursue solitude. Now this is hard because there's a flip side to solitude and it's what we all long to avoid, it's loneliness. But what would it be to discover that times of 
Times of being on your own, let's put it like that. Times that are being on your own are not times for you to be lonely, but they're gifts to enter more deeply into God and his purpose for you. I know that's incredibly glib and cliched and seems shallow and insensitive, but what if we could get that place where when I'm alone, I'm with him? Tell me we wouldn't change, married or single, if, that, if we could work that in our lives. Pursue solitude. Pursue purity. We'll say more about this when we get into sexuality, I suspect. We've got way more fun things to do before Christmas, haven't we? Um, so, uh, uh, I just say this here. If one day you hope to be married, for goodness sake, wait. I can't tell you just pastorally how many people struggle years into their marriage because of what happened sexually before they were married. That, that's just the reality. And God would say, honour the person that he has for you by waiting. Honour who you are by connecting with him. And we'll say much more. I think it comes out of, I think this sexual drive thing, I mean we live in a sexually mad culture, don't we? So the sexual drive is at its height and we're, we're pushed at it all of the time. There, there are two, two idolatries that single people I think can, um, can, can fall into. First is I'm fiercely independent. I'm not going to get married I'm not going to share my life with anyone. I'm not going to settle down. I'm going to do what I want. In which case, you're tempted to be sexually promiscuous. Because, well, sex is my right. I'm independent. I'll do what I want. I don't want any strings attached. Children, no way. I've seen what children do to adults. They look ruined after 10 years of having kids in their home. I'm not doing that. And so there's, there's this independent streak. And then there's this dependent streak. I'll only be who I can be if I am married and you're tempted to be sexually promiscuous because at least it feels a little bit like marriage even if you can't find the real thing in the short term. Pursue purity. Pursue purity. Pursue family. Pursue family. We were meant to live in families. We were not necessarily meant to live a man and his wife and 2.4 or 1.9 or whatever. Most cultures in the world, the culture in which this psalm was written is the culture of the extended family, the oikos. You heard Francis talk about it some moments ago. We should not have anyone in our community who does not feel connected with family. But we do, church. And it is our responsibility to fix that. It's not married people's responsibility. It's not single people's responsibility. But it's our responsibility to fix that. God sets the lonely in families, and he wants to use us to do it. What does that mean? That means we've got to be very hospitable. We've got to have people in our homes. We've got to have people we're sharing our lives with. We've got to have people who, uh, who we're just uh, uh, walking the walk and talking the talk with. And as I said, was it in this, yeah, at the beginning, the first sermon perhaps, or the second, about how the worst thing we've done in our culture is reduce ourselves down to our smallest unit. So if you're single, then it's you. All the best. If it's a married couple, then it's you two. All the best. If it's you two and a couple of kids, little, little unit. All the best. And you don't need to be a sociologist to see it doesn't work. 
Is it working? No. No. Because you on your own can't take the pressure any more than a young married couple all by themselves can take the pressure. They'll kill each other before the end of the first year. They need help. And so do we all. And so we we have to reassess the way that we're living. We have to get rid of this word of family, meaning people that disappear behind a closed door. We have to reinvent that life of community that we've lost. Because it's really hard to be married and you need people to help you. And it's really hard to be single and you need people to help you. I guess it's just really hard, isn't it? There's a unique contribution, though, that I think that single people can make into this whole family thing. You know what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 15? He says, there's loads of people that are kind of looking out for you. But what you really need is a father. I, says Paul, single man, became a a father. Timothy talks about Paul in the New Testament as his father. You might not have physical children, but you may be a fantastic father. We need to capture that in a new way. We need fathers. We need mothers too. We need mothers. The person who's had the most impact, probably, on our lives, Kerry and I, on our marriage, on our family, is an older single lady. She's mothered us in an absolutely brilliant way. And we all need that. We all need that. It's funny, isn't it, that they called Teresa of Calcutta Mother Teresa. She was single and celibate. Pursue friendship. Pursue friendship. It's not good for the man to be alone. It doesn't say, Adam was feeling horny, so I will find a sexual partner for him. It doesn't say, Adam was worried what he would do on a Saturday night, so I will find someone for him to go out with. Friendship Deep friendship, companionship, life together is what it was all about. And I think being a Christian means that we need to invert the whole process of the way the world operates. And this comes back to what I was saying earlier on. C.S. Lewis talks of four loves down the bottom there. Storge, which is kind of a romantic, uh, affectionate, candlelight dinner, coziness type of love. Anyone fancy some of that? Uh, eros, sexual love, sexual attraction. I'm not going to ask the same question. <laughs> Philia, friendship. And agape, commitment. Now, in our culture, what do we tend to do? We tend to put storge and eros first. I fancy you, therefore I'll indulge with you, and if we keep going for a while, we'll see if we can make it as friends. Isn't that what happens? The Christian if we're not careful, offers only a subtle difference. I fancy you, I'm not allowed to have sex with you because the Bible says, or some frustrated pastor says, so I won't do that, but I fancy you, so let's see if we can be friends, and we'll go on lots of dates, we'll do the romance, and maybe the friendship will work out. 
That's how we work. So you go into a room and there are 15 other people and you scan the 15 other people of the opposite gender and you've already eliminated about 13 of them. That's not just me, come on. (laughs) Don't leave me hanging here. Isn't that true? That's how we work. That's how our physical, carnal bodies work. We've disregarded most people on the basis of what? Romance or sexual attraction. What we need is not that, we need friendship. When we realise that Eros and Storge are in the wrong place, it needs to alter the way we think about the way we're going to handle ourselves as single people. Because what we're looking for is friendship. That's why people go on date after date after date and they they do the romance but they've never explored the friendship. They get married and they realise that the dishes still need doing and the bed clothes need washing and the ironing still... And they go, we can't handle this because all they had was romance. The friendship must come first. This is really important. Say to your children, your young people, the friendship must come first. Otherwise, you'll get romantically involved with someone and that'll go on for some months, maybe 12 months, maybe 18 months and maybe two years and you'll be romantically involved and you think, well, it's too late to pull out now. And so people will walk up the aisle because of the romance and they've never discovered that they needed to be friends. I'm discovering I feel quite passionately about that as I share it with you. Because it's true, because I see it. So when we realise that we put the eros in the wrong place, we've got to realise that perhaps we put the romance in the wrong place too. You see, if you really become good friends with someone, I guarantee the romance will sort itself out, and the sex certainly will. But if you have the romance, there's no guarantees about the friendship. Pursue friendship. Pursue friendship. And it's interesting, isn't it? Commentators have said you, you, know, you, you, um, you kind of form a relationship with someone and the temptation is to immediately exclude yourself from all your other friends. And what you do when you do that is you exclude yourself uh, to this one single uh, person uh, that you're perhaps getting romantically involved in and you've got no other friendships to measure it against. And you lose sight, you lose your orientation. As if I'm going to commit myself, agape to someone, we need to be friends. Because there'll come a time when, you know, you're going to look like the back end of a bus. <laughs> and and, and, and I, I need to know, and I do know, that when I look like the back end of a bus, there's still going to be someone that's going to love me. Because we're friends. Because we're friends. Pursue friendship. two promises and then we're going to pray and come around the Lord's table first promise is this find in Isaiah maybe you want to turn to this Isaiah 56 I might be pushing the point a little bit here but I think it holds Verse 4 of Isaiah 56. Promise of singleness is the... What is it? Well, it's this promise from Jesus. To the eunuchs. Now, it all depends on how you interpret the word eunuch here. Uh, 
But I think the principle, if you if you follow the the whole of the the Old Testament, the principle holds good. The people who are single and choosing to seize the opportunity of their singleness to put God's kingdom first. Okay, people who are single and are choosing. How do we know they're choosing? Because they keep the Sabbath. They choose what pleases me. That's the Lord. And they hold fast to the covenant. So these aren't single people thinking, for heaven's sake, I can't wait to be married. They might have a human longing to be married. That's perfectly reasonable. Nothing wrong with that desire at all. But the season that they are in, we're keeping the Sabbath, we're choosing what pleases the Lord, we're holding fast to the covenant. Verse 5. To them, I will give within my temple and its walls, a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. What's God saying? What's God saying? That for those of you who are living in a season, which means you do not have children, maybe you can never, will never have children, there is a blessing in God's agenda, on God's time frame, that will be to you better than earthly sons and daughters. Hallelujah. I will give them an everlasting name. A Jewish man wanted more than anything for his name to be remembered, which is why he would long for sons. And if a Jewish man died in their culture, the brother would marry the wife in order to have another son, that the name might be continued. Jesus is saying, God's saying here in Isaiah 56, for those of you who who feel in your life that, that humanly the legacy comes to an end, there is a legacy, there is a name that's greater than anything that earth could provide. Hallelujah. Now that requires a leap of faith, for sure, for some of us. That's a big step into what God might have for us that feels hard. But there it is. The promise of Jesus in Isaiah 56. That your name will be honoured. Everlasting. That a blessing is yours bigger and greater than sons and daughters. To the single person who chooses in that season of singleness to give themselves to God's kingdom. Secondly and finally, the promise of singleness is the presence of Jesus. What Paul's heart cry was, I want to know Jesus. And it takes us full circle, right back to the Samaritan woman who knew five men and then one that wasn't her husband. And she's still looking, she's still seeking. And Jesus says, you're looking in the wrong place. You better go, go get your husband. Oh, oh, he's not your husband. He opens her up like a living book and says, what you need is water that you can only get from me that will ultimately quench your relational thirst. Jesus. Whether you're single or married, you need Jesus. Whether you're happily single, happily married, you need Jesus. Whether being single feels like today the loneliest thing on the earth, whether being married to that person feels like the loneliest thing on earth, you need Jesus. I 
relate to him first. And it will never make sense without that. Let's pray.